0: Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for another day, just to be alive, just to realize that you thought about us from eternity past, uh, even though you really shouldn't have. In spite of our sin and rebellion, you sent your son to die on our behalf to save us for all eternity by your grace. Father, we ask that you bless this message, have your Spirit guide us and lead us and teach us. We ask these things in Christ's precious name, and it's by the power of the Spirit we pray. Amen. All right. Why are the apostles so encouraging? By grace they were prepared, part four. So on Sunday, uh, pastor brought up Evel Knievel in an analogy, and I don't know about you, but I saw the little sparkle in his eye, <laughs> kind of like good memories. But um, the idea came from the fact that men think reaching God is as simple as jumping over a puddle, maybe, as opposed to literally trying to jump over the Grand Canyon. That's where the idea came from, and it's that hopelessness that man has without God that they need to realize. So we saw all the injuries of Evil Knievel, this ridiculous list of injuries, and it was all because he didn't have the ability, he didn't have the ability to safely do the things that he tried. Just like man doesn't have the ability to meet God's perfect standards. Just not possible. So the point that came up out of all this on Sunday was regarding Futility. If you don't have the correct apparatus to make the leap and you refuse the omnipotent God's help, you will surely crash and injure yourself. Trying to save oneself results in permanent eternal injury, a.k.a. spiritual death and hell. Obviously, there's no greater uh, error to make than this error. When man arrogantly believes he's good enough on his own and that he can save himself in some way, He deceives himself all the way to the grave, and then judgment must take place. And this is part of our job as evangelists, even though it's an uncomfortable situation or discussion sometimes, that we have to bring up things like this. That, you know, it is appointed for man, every man, to die just once, and then comes judgment. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 9, verse 27. So again, when man arrogantly believes he's good enough on his own and he can save himself, he deceives himself all the way to the grave, and then it's too late for any repentance. Judgment must take place. That's why God gives us so many days and so many years, a lot of people. He gives us so many chances to repent and believe. Hebrews 9:27. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin, to those who eagerly await him. But again, it's appointed for men to die once, and then comes judgment. On the board regarding Jesus' call... We talked about why didn't Jesus choose the Pharisees to represent him? Why the apostles? And the answer is a pretty simple conclusion. The Pharisees thought they could save themselves. So if someone doesn't want God's help, God can't force it on them. He honors free will, and the Pharisees just were stuck in that place where they thought they could save themselves. The apostles looked to Jesus to save them. So turn again in your Bibles to Matthew 16, verse 15. God gives grace to the humble, but he makes war with the arrogant. If someone's not humble, they they refuse his grace. Matthew 16, 15, Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So Peter knew his place, he knew who the Lord was, and he admitted that, obviously, freely. And not only that, but Peter was also repentant, where the Pharisees were not repentant. Turn to Luke chapter 5, verse 8, and let's see the repentance of Peter when the Lord revealed himself to him. Luke 5, 8. So again, this is what the apostles had going for them. Yeah, they were only fishermen. They were uneducated, but they didn't need any of that. They needed humility and grace. Luke 5, 8. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Looks like repentance to me, huh? For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear, from now on you will be catching men. When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. There in verse 8 we see Peter's repentant heart. He turned from his sinfulness and the idea of saving himself. And then he followed Jesus. Remember, two sides of the same coin, repentance and faith in Christ. You cannot separate one side of a coin from the other. They're permanently one. And that's why the coin is a good analogy here. You can't have one without the other. The Spirit gave us a big picture illustration, which even impacted the timeline of human history. John the Baptist was sent by the Holy Spirit before the Lord came on the scene. So on the board, we reviewed this on Sunday regarding repentance preceding faith in Christ. Why did John the Baptist arrive with an entire ministry of repentance before Jesus did with the good news regarding himself? Because the hearts, think of the parable of the soils, the hearts of the Jews had to be conditioned to receive the Messiah and Savior. And God knew this. So, in grace, He gave them John the Baptist to try to wake them up, to stir the soil, to make them think. So, repentance is so important that John the Baptist and Jesus began their ministries with the call to repent. Again, the other side of faith, the thing that must precede true faith in Christ. On the board. We saw Matthew 3, 2, where John the Baptist said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Matthew four seventeen, from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Same thing. Same consistent message. On the board, The arrogant hearts of men need to be readied before they will turn to the Lord. If one doesn't admit their sinfulness and repent, they will reject the gospel of Jesus Christ, thinking they have no real need. Matthew 3, 1 through 12, we already read. Repentance is something that I continue to learn a lot about since we started on this. And I'm really in awe of the subtle ways that God is opening up my eyes to the importance of repentance, but also how it works. Like the mechanics, of the supernatural Thing that's going on in the soul of men or that must go on he's he's giving us more and more viewpoints more and more angles into that rosebush and i hope it's the same for all of you because we're all evangelists and we're, we're all told to do the work of an evangelist and so the more we understand repentance and like its depths you know what i mean like it's um different parts how, how it even works in a man's soul. It, the more that the Spirit reveals these things to us, the more we can relate to people and explain repentance when it's our job. Now, we visited Matthew 3 twice already. We saw um, John the Baptist's words. Let's see a variation of that in the Gospel of Luke. And as we'll see, uh, as the Spirit's been unfolding to us, true repentance and faith result in good deeds. Otherwise, something's missing. Something vital is missing. On the board, again, regarding John the Baptist's ministry of repentance, the message is clear. If you really repent, then do the right thing or the righteous thing. You can't fool God. Go to Luke 3, verse 7. If you really repent, do the right thing. Or are you faking, trying to fake God out? Are you trying to act the part? If someone really repents, they end up changing behavior, in some way. Luke three seven. So he, John the Baptist, began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, "You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance." And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. So every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Here we see again the warning that no good fruit reveals a person didn't really repent. And it results in eternal judgment. Again, you can't fool God. You can't fool God. And when God, when God changes somebody, it's a real change. you know. When God um, humbles somebody and then gives them the gift of salvation and gives them a new nature, these are all real changes that take place in the person that, that truly repents and turns to Christ. As we read on in this passage, the actions or the following actions test the faith of a man in these very moments that he chooses to believe or not proving he doesn't really repent or believe think of the rich young ruler which we'll get to again in other words there's that point of critical discernment on the chart where you have to make a decision and you have to either humble yourself and repent before God and, and trust in Christ or you turn away, you walk away because it's too much to give up for you or you you know in your arrogance want to hold on to things. So let's read on in verse 10. This could even supernaturally be part of the conversion process of a man's soul, okay? Just keep be open. In verse 10, the crowds were questioning him. Now now again in verse 9, John the Baptist just said, "The axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire." So, you know, naturally the crowd should be concerned, right? (laughs) And the crowds were questioning him, saying, then what shall we do? And he would answer and say to them, the man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And he who has food is to do likewise. And some tax collectors also came to be baptized. And they said to him, teacher, what shall we do? He said to them, collect no more than what you've been ordered to. A lot of the tax collectors would skim off the top or charge extra and get rich, right? Off their own people. Collect no more than what you've been ordered to. Some soldiers were questioning him, saying, And what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. So these people at least humbled themselves before John the Baptist and said, Okay, tell me what this looks like, this repentance thing. When you say, you know, do the deeds that keep with repentance, what do, you, what, what do we do? So there's that childlike faith in a sense, right, to ask for that guidance. But just consider that the actions mentioned there were like the next step in testing the faith of a man. Do you really repent? Do you really believe? Okay, then, then do the right thing. If you say no to that, if you go on and live in your sane, deceitful, selfish lifestyle... You, you're not changed. You did not really repent. I hope, I hope it makes sense. And also notice that John the Baptist, he didn't tell them to go and be sinless. That's not what he said after this. He said, if you really repent, then go and do the right thing. Go and do the right thing. Live in righteousness. If you think about it, John the Baptist's response is kind of like the Lord's response to Peter's repentance, which we already saw. He didn't focus on sin and guilt. He focused on the righteous thing to do going forward. If you really repent, then you'll admit the wrong things you've been doing and you won't do those anymore, right? So on the board, we saw grace revealed in Luke 5, 8 through 11, which we already read, when Peter said, Go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. The Lord said, Do not fear. From now on, you'll be catching men. Does the Lord even bring up his sin? How beautiful is that, right? And really, John the Baptist did a similar thing. He said, Go forward and follow me, basically. So by grace, the apostles were prepared. And this on the board is an example of that preparation for Peter. The Lord treats each of us with that same grace if we are repentant and humble before Him. He gives us the same opportunity and privilege to do His work, not counting our sins against us. How awesome is that, that we don't have a, like a guilt-ridden God? Not guilt-ridden, but putting guilt on us. You know what I mean? Which He has the right to do. Instead of doing that, He sets us free and says, I want you to go forward, follow me, and live in righteousness. Just as a friendly reminder on the board, in 2 Corinthians 5.19, in the NIV, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. Remember, reconciling means peace, making peace with the world. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. So that's why when we realize how sinful we are and we repent, we can go forward. We can go forward in freedom after trusting in Christ to save us. So let's revisit Matthew now. Uh, Go back to Matthew 3, verse 8. And this came up on Sunday, a couple things from this passage that Pastor brought out. So John the Baptist said, Therefore bear fruit, in keeping with repentance, in other words, don't deceive yourself, and do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. One of the weaknesses of religion, one of the many weaknesses of religion, is it supposes and assumes a certain level of goodness on its own. And It assumes a certain position uh, based on its leaders, maybe, or its accomplishments. Failing to see that each person needs to individually answer to the Lord. That's the problem with religion. Like the Jews were clinging to Abraham for salvation. We're children of Abraham. We're all set. Even though we do what we want and we don't think we need to repent, etc., etc. Each person needs to individually answer to the Lord so thus the need for individual repentance we saw on Sunday this phrase do not suppose and it reeks of the contemporary plague in the churches where people are convinced that they are saved just because they are official members of a church for example or of a certain group or lineage you know I I, uh, had a chance to speak to a young man today who's a Seventh-day Adventist and they cling to the Old Testament and basically believe that you keep the Ten Commandments and you don't eat pork and things like that to be saved. I mean, how sad is that? And he says he's a Christian. Um, When I said, well, you know, you're saved by grace. That's the important thing. He goes, what's grace? Can you imagine? So do not suppose that because you're in this church that is religious and does good things, let's say, or whatever, and people are living a good life, or obeying the Ten Commandments, don't suppose that you're all set. In fact, I've seen this in foreign countries with children of pastors. With children of pastors, their tendency is, because my father's a pastor, I'm, I'm all set with God. i got to be. Look how awesome my dad is, right? So they assume they're saved. They may not have repented to God for their sinfulness and turned to Christ in their own heart. It's just something you don't want to suppose. So each child, as we heard on Sunday, needs to cut the cord and realize he must go to the Lord on his own for his own forgiveness and redemption. Every child needs to be made aware of his sinfulness. And the Spirit's been reminding us uh, lately of this on the board. Jesus never had a problem challenging a person's salvation. And neither did John the Baptist. So let's read on in Matthew 3.10. He says, The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor and he will gather his wheat into the barn and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire So why not challenge people <laughs> you know why not be willing to talk about repentance and the fact that verse 10 says every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire So don't deceive yourself. On Sunday, we saw a chart to illustrate the various situations going on in men's souls. And we can see how both repentance and faith must occur in the human soul, or there will be a lack of true saving faith in Jesus as both Lord and Savior. And again, on this uh, chart, remember, zero just means there is none, and a one just means there is, all right? So we see the conversion coin. Repenting and faith in Christ. Two sides of the same coin. There's the person who doesn't repent and doesn't have faith in Christ. Obviously they're they have a hardened heart, for example, as the Bible says in John twelve, thirty nine through forty. There's someone who doesn't repent and they express a pseudo faith in Christ, like the rich young ruler in Matthew nineteen, sixteen through twenty two and sixteen twenty four. Then there's some people that will repent that realize that they need, you know, help that they're a sinner, but they turn to the wrong Savior. They turn to another God, another Jesus, as in 2 Corinthians 11.4. They refuse to give Jesus his due, as Peter did. And then there's the person that repents and has faith in Christ. Two sides of the same coin. Again, because without repentance, someone's not really going to turn to Christ to save their life because they don't think they need to. So this is the saved person in Mark 1, 15 and Romans 10, 8 through 10. Let's revisit this pseudo-believer who never really counts the cost, but is just out for what he can get to cover his butt, so to speak. And this principle came out on Sunday regarding spurious faith. This pseudo-believer is the type of person who comes to Jesus... Without any regard of their own sinfulness, looking for a handout, they are users looking for the keys to heaven. They want to cover their butt. I think it's very well worded. It came up on Sunday, but it wasn't on the board, so I wanted to put it up there for you. This pseudo-believer is the type of person who comes to Jesus without any regard for their own sinfulness, without any repentance, and just says, maybe I should cover my butt and make sure I'm in good with him, so to speak looking for a handout their users looking for the keys to heaven go again to Matthew 16 verse 24 these people are not willing to really turn from self and turn to Christ and that's what Jesus said is required uh, Matthew sixteen twenty four, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will a man profit if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? There in verse 24 is a picture of true repentance and faith. All right? I think we know this by now. And as we know, the rich young ruler in Matthew 19 is a prime example of one who wanted to hold on to his own life and his own credit. So again, the chart on the board, the conversion coin. We also saw how some people admit their need but turn to another God or another Jesus for help. That's the wrong Savior person. And then we have the repentant heart, the one who cries out to God, God be merciful to me, the sinner, like Peter did. And then he trusts in Christ to save his life. We've already seen Mark one fifteen, where the Lord comes on the scene and says, Repent and believe the good news. So let's wrap up this section with uh, one of my favorite salvation passages now in Romans 10.8. Go again to Romans 10, 8. And this illustrates how saving faith is an issue of the heart, just like repentance is. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. If someone really believes that someone saved their life, don't they treat that person differently? Like if someone saved your life today, if someone literally pushed you from out in front of a coming car, and you knew it was them, and you know you were going to die, and they saved your life. Don't you now treat that person differently? Don't you have an immense gratitude? Wouldn't you even follow them in a way? Wouldn't you say, How can I, what can I do for you? Thank you so much. And So there's a changed heart there. If someone really believes that Christ is their Lord and Savior, that they, they need, need him to save them, and they turn to him with their heart, they have to be changed. You see, that's why following him and believing is really, again, two two opposite sides of the same coin because they've changed. They, they really realize what he did for them. So as Pastor mentioned on Sunday, uh, the chart on the board is really just to get us thinking about the process of conversion. What might be going on in the souls of men? And this is great for us to Try to grasp and see different angles so that when we're dealing with people we can, you know, relate to them. See the spirit, of course, will let you know where you need to go in the conversation. But we want to understand like this conversion process, what people might might be thinking or, or missing. So this is why the apostles are truly encouraging to us. They were not able, but they were humble. They turned to the Lord in humility. They received his grace. And they kept receiving more and more of His grace. And we can fall into that same category so long as we repent and believe. When a person admits they need God's help, the Lord's grace is right there, waiting. In fact, the Lord's just tapping His foot, waiting. He wants to give everybody everything, and He just can't until someone wants Him with their own free will. So real needs are met by grace. The focus of this series, again, is by grace the Lord prepared them, and following the Lord doesn't mean we'll be perfect, which the apostles illustrated to us very well. Thank you. That's very encouraging too, right? Uh, We saw this picture on Sunday of the just-married vehicle with all the cans tied on the back of the car, and it really is a a good analogy to, you know, where, where we are. Uh, we're betrothed, we're engaged to the Lord Jesus Christ when we're saved. We're not, quote-unquote, in the car yet, you know. We're not in heaven yet with the resurrection bodies. We're not fully redeemed yet. And we know, however, that we must follow him. And even though we're clanking behind the car all over the place, we know we're tied to him, we're tethered to him. We know there's no other place to go you know, no other place to go. That's, that's a believer's reality in a believer's heart, even though they clang around. Think about this. Peter was the leader of the apostles, right? Who clanged around more than Peter? I mean, talk again, foot-and-mouth syndrome, whatever you want to call it. He made so many mistakes, but he loved the Lord, and he followed him, and he, you know, that's what the Lord was looking for. Do the righteous thing. I'm going to make you a fisher of men instead of staying in your old life. And Peter just followed, left everything and followed him. So while the Bible tells us that a saved person will persevere in following Jesus, it also says that we're going to fail along the way. And that's okay. It's okay to be a can. Jesus knows you're just a can. He doesn't have any high expectations for you. He tied you on to his vehicle permanently. And that's a believer's heart. They follow him because they know there's no other hope. As we know, God is after man's heart. And the heart of a changed man, the believer, will persistently do the righteous thing instead of the unrighteous things. He'll follow the Lord as the rule of his life, though he makes some unseemly noises along the way. So here's a good point to consider from Sunday. If you look in the mirror and can literally wholeheartedly say, I have no option but to follow Jesus, then you're saved. Was it Peter that said, you know, Lord, where else are we going to go? Who else has the words of eternal life? Right? That's the believer that realizes he's their only hope. If you look in the mirror and can literally wholeheartedly say, I have no option but to follow Jesus, then you're saved. And as Pastor mentioned, this is not another man telling you you're saved. This is a personal test between each of us and the Lord to look in the mirror and see if you can honestly wholeheartedly say that. If we can, we should conclude we're saved. If not, if we can't wholeheartedly say that on the board, there's a problem at the core of a man's soul, and he needs to repent and turn to Christ wholeheartedly. Maybe he's playing religious games. Who knows? But that's the attitude and reality in a a believer's soul. And so as believers who have turned to Christ wholeheartedly to save our very lives, our purpose in life should be the gospel. But Satan tries to corrupt our purpose, even using the Word of God to do so. Don't forget that. Satan uses the Word of God to corrupt the pure purpose that we have. We saw this on Sunday, robbing purpose. Satan hijacks the Christian purpose, getting folks to focus on laboring for crowns rather than simply spreading the gospel. Again, it's almost like taking things out of context. Is our purpose to labor for crowns? Or is that a gift from the grace of God for those that simply spread the gospel and want to see others saved? Even when Paul was chastising the churches, it was because whatever they were doing was detracting from their ultimate purpose <clears throat> regarding the gospel. So turn again to second, uh, First Corinthians 2, verse 1. So Satan uses the word of God to twist it just a little bit, even to take good things and make it the wrong focus. And what frustrated Paul was that, you know, when, when people were off base, when they were, you know, living for self or bickering amongst themselves, it was getting, it was interrupting the purpose of spreading that gospel, the purity of spreading the gospel. 1 Corinthians 2 1. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. You see how how pure Paul's intent was? Like in verse 1, he was so smart. He could have came and razzled and dazzled them and spoke these amazing, wonderful terms and uh, impressed them. And he said, I'm purposely not going to do that because your attention is going to be off of the gospel. And in verse 2, all I care to know about you is Christ and Him crucified. That's it. I know you fail. I know I have to reprimand you sometime. But let's get back to what's really important. Christ and Him crucified. And let's live in the Great Commission. The other apostles kept their focus on Christ too, even while under the greatest pressure. Turn again to Acts 5.27. Acts 5.27. And remember, as pastor said in this uh, verse, this is an an intimidating situation. This isn't like standing before a few leaders in the church. This is standing before governors or leaders of the nation who can execute you. And the apostles didn't care. They were set free from fear, and they said, we're going to focus on Christ, what he did for us, and we're going to obey God instead of men like yourselves. Look at verse 27. When they had brought them, the apostles, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. And yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging on a cross. He's the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. There we see the need of repentance brought front and center uh, in order to be forgiven, all in Christ's name. And then look at verse 32. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who... Obey him. Now let's not skip over that. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Notice it doesn't say the Holy Spirit is given to those who believe, although that's true. Here it says he's given to those who obey the Lord. That's because, as we've been learning, and for some reason the Spirit keeps bringing this up from different angles probably to get through our thick heads but as we've been learning those who truly believe obey that's the evidence of true faith a true faith that surrenders to christ that realizes he saved their life and now they're changed forever because the gratitude is real those in pseudo belief do not obey They don't obey the gospel. They don't obey the Lord. They're playing some kind of a game. So the the Spirit put this word in the apostles' mouths for a reason. In fact, the Greek word, again, we're looking at verse 32, when it says whom God has given, God's given the Holy Spirit to those who obey him. The Greek word for obey means someone submits to an authority. And that should sound familiar. Remember all the time we spent on a person needs to believe in Jesus as both Lord and Savior. That there is an authority issue, there is a surrender issue. Those who follow the Spirit's conviction regarding repentance and faith, they obey the gospel. They obey the gospel. It's a good word that comes up a few times in Scripture. Uh, On the board, true faith obeys. True repentance and faith produces good fruit in one's life it's often called out as or revealed in obedience we see this in John 3.36 2 Thessalonians 1.8 1 Peter 4.17 otherwise someone merely possesses pseudo faith they hear his voice but they don't listen remember all the passages we had on you hear but you don't understand they hear his voice but they don't listen so they don't follow him. Matthew 13, 13 one example, and John ten twenty seven. Take a moment and ponder these things on the board. The Spirit is bringing a lot of principles together that he's taught us over the past months. And I'm not going to go look up these verses with you right now because we've, we've actually covered this in the past, months ago. But I hope you, you see it all coming together better. And I hope you look up these verses on your own. Again, on the board. Excuse me. True repentance and faith produces good fruit in one's life, often called out as and revealed in obedience. John 3.36, 2 Thessalonians 1.8, 1 Peter 4.17. Otherwise, someone merely possesses pseudo-faith. They hear his voice, but they don't listen, so they don't follow him. Matthew thirteen thirteen. that's why the Lord started teaching in parables. John ten twenty seven. my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. So again, I hope you take a moment in your own private time to consider how that all gels together. God wants us to understand the big picture and the operations or the things going on in a man's soul, supernaturally. But he's trying to give us more and more of a glimpse into these things. And remember, these wonderful truths have been passed on to us by a bunch of fishermen. It's awesome, really. Uneducated fishermen. On the board, by grace, they were prepared. Jesus taught his disciples to have their own convictions. He then gave them his spirit to teach, encourage, and empower this. We all have the word of and the spirit of Christ by grace. And as a refresher from uh, last week's lessons on the board, we need to understand when and how the apostles' natural abilities were insufficient for the commission that they were eventually given. It wasn't enough that Jesus simply called 12 unexceptional men. He made a point of training them up before sending them out. God is faithful. He made a point of training them up before sending them out. And he provides training for all of us who follow him as well. So we'll wrap up our lesson coming full circle as Paul describes what changed believers look like compared to unbelievers. So turn again in your Bibles to Ephesians 4, verse 17. Paul is saying you've been changed. You're not like you used to be, if you've really turned to Christ in your heart. Ephesians 4.17 So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you, the Ephesian believers, walk no longer, just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, there we see that zero-zero case on the chart. you know no repentance, no faith, hardness of heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality, for the practice of every kind of impurity, with greediness. But you, the Ephesian believers, you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. So he's saying you're different, you've changed, and you've laid aside the old self. On the board, this is in the Aris tense, which speaks of a one-time action that goes on. There's no more action needed. It was a decision made, and it goes on forever. In the middle voice... The subject does and receives the action of the verb. That's what the middle voice means. So the subject has their free will involved to consent, for example, and they receive the action of laying aside. The Lord's the one that gives them the power to do it. And then the indicative mood is a dogmatic fact is what that means. So it means to lay off or lay aside, renounce. I like that word, renounce. It, It gives you that view of the Aris tense, right? I renounce this. This is evil. I'm done with it. Uh, Stow away in context refers to what a true believer does. Paul affirms with the Lord that these Ephesians are not like unbelievers anymore. And then he goes on to describe them as those who lay aside the old self. So on the board, just a little review regarding lay aside the aris tense, a believer lays aside the old self forever. They make that decision to repent. I'm I'm sinful. I, I need you, Lord. And they turn to Christ. So they lay aside the old self forever. The middle voice, a believer, is changed and therefore forever able to do so, forever able to live in that thing. And the indicative mood says the above are dogmatic statements of fact. So again, look at verse 22. That in reference to your former manner of life, You lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you, being renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Notice the new self is provided by God, it's in the likeness of God, created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. That's your new nature, your new creature. And so, this passage is really one thought in context. It's like flipping a coin. It's laying aside the old self and putting on the new. You've got to put something on, in other words. Are you going to keep the old clothes on or are you going to put the new clothes on? So, literally, it's a, a joint event. So, on the board, putting on the new self. We saw this was in the Aris Middle Infinitive. It corresponds to you lay aside. It means to don, to put on as clothing. In context, it implies the other side of the same coin. That is, you lay aside the old self. That occurs at salvation and forevermore. The two actions, the two verbs are related. On the board, uh, regarding this Arist infinitive, which is a little different, it does not indicate person or number. It presents the action expressed by the verb as a complete unit with the beginning and end. And in context, it refers back to the previous action of, of laying aside. It ties them together, the infinitive does. So what this ultimately means is that laying aside and putting on are part of one transaction that occurs at salvation. This describes what we've been calling out uh, over the last year and a half as turning from self and turning to Christ. It's really really one thing. Turning from self or turning to Christ. You're, You're facing one or the other. Turning from sin and turning to righteousness. That's a decision that the humble person makes. So let's close with what we started with, and that is the fact that repentance and faith are part of the same conversion coin. Just like laying aside the old self is to putting on the new self. On the board, regarding the conversion coin, repentance and faith, hand in hand. Laying aside the old self, putting on the new self. Denying self and following him. These are all two sides of the same coin. In other words, you have to be following one or the other. I mean look at denying self or following him. You're either following yourself, living for self or you choose to follow him and turn to him. These are all pictures of the conversion process. These things are one flowing event in the soul of a true believer. This means a person is changed at a point in time and is never able to undo that change. Nor would he want to because his heart's been changed he realizes that God pushed him out of the way of that oncoming vehicle. If he really believes that and accounts that, counts that cost, so to speak, and says, that's a reality in my life. I believe that's what he did for me. He cannot not be changed. And that's what the Spirit's been telling us. And the good news is, on the board, that God's grace never fails. So when somebody honestly turns to God repents in humility and trusts in Christ God does his work he changes them and he supplies the power he supplies the grace to go forward and live in righteousness even to go forward and become fishers of men he does it all all you do is you hang on <laughs> you don't really even have to hang on you're tied like those cans to the car You're tied to the Lord because you've realized there's no other way and there's no other hope besides Him. And now you have all of His grace available to you. More and more if you receive His grace like the apostles did. Amen? All right, let's power our heads. Father, we thank you again for another day, another chance to gather together as your children in an attitude of gratefulness, and appreciation for all you've done. Help us never, ever become familiar with what you've done. And help us continue to follow you one day at a time. And give us more and more grace to do so, Father. We ask that you help us bring your word out to a lost and dying world that needs it so desperately. It's in Christ's precious name we pray, by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Amen.